Welcome to Rust Belt Evolution Radio. I'm A. Maria. In today's episode, reports from the prisoner resistance movement released on the anniversary of the 1971 Attica Prison Rebellion. We reflect on the intensifying prisoner resistance movement in America. That's America with a K, as George Jackson would write it. We focus on two extraordinary flashpoints of the prisoner resistance movement, the nationwide September 9, 2016 prisoner strike and the August 19, 2017 Millions for Prisoners March. We speak with Ben Turk of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee of the Industrial Workers of the World and Firehawk of Unstoppable about strategies developing within the contemporary prisoner resistance movement. We also speak with Crystal Roundtree of the I Am We Prison Advocacy Network about the organizing efforts inside and outside that made the August 19 Millions for Prisoners March possible. We close the episode with Dee, an incarcerated organizer with Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, who tells us about what went down inside in the wake of August 19 and what's next. But first, here's Kaif Syed with some news you may have missed. On August 25th, President Trump pardoned former Maricopa County Sheriff Joe Arpaio. Arpaio was being held in criminal contempt for disobeying a judge's orders to cease racial profiling. Arpaio and his officers have been known to profile, harass, beat, and detain immigrants in Arizona, as well as a litany of other assaults on the most marginalized of our society, including the overseeing of multiple murders of inmates by his guards, medical and nutritional neglect of inmates, and the formation of inmate chain gangs. He went so far as to refer to the open-air jail, Tent City, as his own concentration camp. Due to these actions and his targeting of the undocumented, Sheriff Joe Arpaio has become an icon within the white supremacist imagination of America. The pardon of Arpaio is yet another illustration of the ways in which the carceral state not only relies upon white supremacist law, but also upon the inalienable right of police power to enforce that law only when and where it sees fit, and further, to deploy violence which exceeds the constraints of legality, supposedly in defense of the law itself. By pardoning Arpaio, Trump is signaling his allegiance to white supremacy, and to the white supremacist populism his presidency both depends upon and extends. The enduring fantasy of white supremacy is that every act of racial violence is an act of self-defense, the defense of the right to indigenous land and racial domination. See news from the streets at rustballradio.org for more on this news item. I'm here with Alejo Stark, and you're listening to Rust Belt Abolition Radio, an abolitionist media and movement-building project based in Detroit, Michigan. Alejo and I caught up with Ben Turk and Firehawk during the Fire Inside Zoom Tour to discuss the September 9 national prison strike, the largest prisoner rebellion in U.S. history to date. The zine goes in-depth with organizing strategy and tactics, identifies successes and shortcomings, and aims to establish a through line between this peak of prisoner resistance and future efforts that will surely exceed it. My name is Ben Turk. I've been involved in prison abolition projects for seven or eight years or something like that. Started in Ohio with Redbird Prison Abolition and Lucasville Amnesty, supporting the guys who were thrown on death row or long sentences after the Lucasville uprising in 1993. Now I'm working closely with IWOC. Uh, I'm based out of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. IWOC is the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee of the IWW, which is the Industrial Workers of the World, and we're organizing and coordinating support for prisoner strikes and actions on the inside. 
I'm Firehawk, and I've been doing anti-prison stuff for the past several years, and am involved in political education work in women's prisons primarily, but also help edit a publication known as Unstoppable, which is a newsletter by and for women, trans, and non-binary folks who are incarcerated. And right now, we're working together on a regional tour with a zine we put together called The Fire Inside. We've co-authored a couple of different papers about prison abolition and stuff like that. And for this, we compiled and gathered report backs from inside and outside about what happened last fall with the prison strikes. Can you briefly describe the scope of what happened last September? There were over 50,000 prisoners who were affected by all the facilities that we were able to track who went on lockdown. There were also prisoners who trashed their cell blocks and did hunger strikes and various other types of actions and participating in the protest. And there were a hell of a lot of outside solidarity actions as well that we should definitely remember because they were an important part of it. And why was September 9 picked as a date for these actions? September 9th is the 45th anniversary of the Attica uprising in New York State at Attica Prison. And those prisoners were forming multiracial alliances to push back against the racist regime and also the prison conditions in commemoration of that day. Prisoners chose September 9th. So Ben, you mentioned IWOC as one of the organizations that played a role in the events leading up to the September 9th strike. Can you tell us what other organizations were also involved in part of coordinating this historic event? Prisoners are engaged in resistance every day. Uh, every day of every year, there's prisoners somewhere who are fighting back, and we want to like recognize and hold that up. The call for a coordinated strike came from Free Alabama Movement, Free Ohio Movement, and prisoners in various different places. As soon as they heard that folks were talking about a coordinated national work stoppage, people everywhere were like, hell yeah, we've been talking about that forever. We're excited to get on board. Let's do this. In one of the things you all wrote, called Freedom First, which we will link to on our website, you all talk about the three main ways in which organizers inside are thinking about and characterizing the prison regime today. Can you tell us what those are? So the three things that we focus on in the zine are the economic and political and just like the existential or bodily experiences of slavery, the way in which their labor is exploited and they're used to make money for the prison authorities in the state and private contractors of all different kinds. And so by withholding labor, they can challenge slavery in terms of the forced labor component. The second way in which they challenge slavery is by asserting political agency and making making spaces for themselves in which they contest the conditions in which they're confined and also contest the prison as a whole. And then the third way in which they resist slavery is by asserting physical independence again. What are some of the surprises that came up for inside and outside organizers in the wake of September 9? I mean, everyone was caught off guard by what happened in March in Holman. We just got text messages from contacts we had inside with pictures of people running around and fires and stuff like that. And we we're like, what the heck is going on? And so that definitely caught people off guard. And that incident was a case in which, as as Michael Kimball describes in the Fire Inside zine and, and his own website, which is anarchylive.org, it was started with two prisoners who had beef, got in fight with, with each other. And then when the COs and the warden came in to intervene in that fight, they were really excessively aggressive. And the prisoners responded by attacking them. 
stabbed both the CO and the warden, and then took over the whole cell block and started and went around unlocking doors and trying to get into the cubicles where they could then unlock all the doors. Took over the prison, and then the CERT team came in, which is the security emergency response team, came in, you know, restored order. And then less than a day later, it happened again. So people in Holman going really hard was a really unexpected part of this that happened in spring. And it was even before we went public with the call for the September 9th strike that that occurred. And then prisoners in Texas called for a work stoppage and pulled off a work stoppage in early April. And so that's when we were like, we need to go public with this call. We need to make this happen. By the time September 9th was coming around, prisoners in Alabama, the lockdown situation was much more severe, and they lost a lot of their communication. And so they they did do strikes and work stoppages, but it was shorter. Um, and then in other places, it, it was much larger than expected. Uh, here in Michigan, up in the UP at Kinross, I don't think anybody expected the 200 people to go on strike there. In northern Florida, there was a series of actions that were really large there. And prisoners in, in report backs that we've got just heard about the strike just a day before and then organized something and pulled it off. So that, I think, was unexpected and really exciting, but also really challenging because we don't have support there. A lot of the places where we do have support, there wasn't direct local solidarity that was ready for something. So I'm excited to see what happens in the future and going forward as we generalize the idea of supporting prison strikes, then wherever it is that they happen, there'll be people on the outside who are ready and have already have some experience doing it who can step up. Can you tell us about this call to organize and how the events of September 9 relate to the events of August 19th? August 19th is it's a call from prisoners from Jailhouse Lawyers Speak, which is one of the inside organizations that kind of held things down the longest with a work stoppage in South Carolina and elsewhere back starting on September 9th. And they also didn't know about the 9th until fairly late in the game, but they had already built networks and they had been organizing for this kind of stuff. With September 9th, our priority and the focus of the promotion that we did for it was on a call for action on the inside and then calls for solidarity to go with that. They're sort of reversing it. They're calling for a march on Washington on August 19th for demonstrations all across the country on that day, showing that outside support first and prioritizing outside support and then looking for prisoners to take action after that. And we need to build and demonstrate outside support in order to really unlock the potential. There's a feedback loop that happens when prisoners go on strike or take action. It's inspiring to us on the outside. And then when we step up to have solidarity and have their back, that shows them that they aren't alone in those struggles and that emboldens them to take more action. And if we can keep that feedback loop going, then we can really shake the foundation of this thing that, that's strangling all of us, really. One of the challenges that we face as organizers, and we're both white, especially white organizers and anarchists in this country, is the racial divides that exist. So September 9th was called for by Sadiq Abdullah Hassan, who's a black man in Ohio, the Free Alabama Movement, who are black men in Alabama. But it was really amplified and picked up, and it's going down, and Mask Magazine and these kind of white anarchist organizations were the ones who really kind of built the outside solidarity and support around that. August 19th, 
18th, the outside support is primarily from I Am We Ubuntu, the Coalition for Prisoner Human Rights, and the George Jackson University, which are all black-led, and they're mostly led by black women. We need to get these two tendencies to work together better and more closely, and we need to build trust across that racial divide that actually defines all of our lives in this country and the society that we live in. So I think that's just one important aspect of this and a reason that we as white anarchists, even though like a march on Washington maybe doesn't sound like our thing generally, is something that we that we need to come together with and cooperate and build a coalition to find coordination across these differences and distinctions. Are there any final things you'd like to highlight? One of the things that I'm really working on in collaboration with other people is thinking about how we can generalize this strike and this series of resistance efforts to fem rebels and to detention centers. You know, these places, they're already rising up. There are instances, and I think that they need a mouthpiece on the outside to really help lift that up and also to send more materials into. And with support efforts, we're seeing them grow, and I think that they're all amazing and very inspiring to me and I would hope that collectives also ask the question right like what detention centers are in the area what facilities that house women are in the area are there any trans women in the men's facilities right and just sort of like thinking about how resistance or political materials need to perhaps be framed differently to the lives of the people that you're sending them into the fire inside the zine that we put together includes voices of many, many prisoners and lots of different strategic questions. We included things that were critical of outside support and critical of organizations that we're affiliated with, specifically IWOC, because we want to improve. We want to work on how to make these things better. We really want to generalize the strategic knowledge that is coming from inside the prisons as far as how we can do support on the outside better. So fireinside.noblogs.org is where you can get PDF of the zine and really incorporate it into the way that you do outside organizing. And also send it in to folks on the inside to help them incorporate it into the strategies that they employ. Can I end with a quote from Jason Renard Walker, who is incarcerated at the Clements Unit in Texas? He says that the motivation and driving force to our resistance is this, knowing that the politics of polarization and containment in America is racialization and incarceration. It keeps us divided at odds with with each other and exploited and repressed by the penal system at the same time. This reality is how we got to the conclusion that if we don't come together and let the crops rot in the fields, we'll continue to be exploited, divided, and promoted to be the musters of our own slavery and eventually the masters of our own destruction. Dare to struggle, dare to win, all power to the people, Jason Renard Walker. I spoke with Crystal Roundtree, the founder of the I Am We Prisoner Advocacy Network, a national organizer of the August 19 Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March in Washington, D.C. My name is Crystal Roundtree. I am the co-founder of I Am We Prison Advocacy Network based out of Raleigh, North Carolina. I am also the court organizer for the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March on Washington, the organizing committee. I Am We is a human rights organization focused on working with prisoners behind the walls. Not only do we work directly with prisoners in terms of advocating on their behalf, 
We also provide support for families and friends affected by their loved ones' imprisonment. We do have several community-based initiatives going on in my local area. Currently, one of our main issues are the felony housing disenfranchisement laws that we are tackling. Uh, We've been so caught up, though, over the last two years in terms of planning and organizing for the march. Um, But one of the main things that the I Am We Prison Advocacy family will continue to work on and challenge is, of course, the 13th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. We aim to end legalized slavery. So that will be an ongoing mission of I Am We. Prison Advocacy Network, as well as the Millions for Prisoners Human Rights Coalition. So you mentioned uh, it's been two years in the planning, right, this August 19 Millions for Prisoners March. Can you tell us a little bit about what that process was like for you all, why you decided to take on that endeavor? Sure. So there is a coalition called Jailhouse Lawyers Speak. This is a collective of prisoners throughout the nation who are jailhouse lawyers. The idea for the march itself actually came from Jailhouse Lawyers Speak Coalition. And I and we took up their calls and, and worked uh, hard to realize their vision of turning this Millions for Prisoners Human Rights event into a national day of mass awareness, mass education, of the plight of our entire criminal and justice system, as we like to call it, the prison industrial enslavement complex. But just, you know, over the course of the two years, legalized slavery, 13th Amendment, those are sometimes challenging concepts for your average person to even grasp and understand. It used to be conversations that only the prisoners and revolutionaries and people who were affected by these issues were were attacking and, and, and addressing. And we hope to connect that inside movement that was already going on from the prisoners with with, with the people on the outside and and kind of um, jointly recognize these situations for what they actually are and to work collectively to challenge those issues. Over the course of the two years, it's been a lot of convincing, a lot of education going on. I mean, we're truly grassroots. We, even up until the day of the march, we were still fundraising. You know, we were not backed by any sort of large sponsors or donors. And it was really the people coming out, dedicating their time, their resources, their energy. Perhaps someone knew someone who had some equipment or something that we could use. You know, $5, $10, $20 donations. That, those are the types of things that we really had to pull together to make this march a success. And I always have to thank the people continuously for their dedication to this movement. It's it's truly been a historic thing that we have been able to do on behalf of the prisoners, and we certainly uh, plan to keep that momentum going now that we're past August the 19th. So can you tell us a little bit, for folks that were in in D.C. on the 19th, can you tell us what what went down there, as well as uh, how you all connected with other actions nationwide? So on August the 19th, our main event was there in Washington, D.C., In addition to the event in in D.C., we did have 16 other cities throughout the country that hosted solidarity events nationwide. And it was absolutely beautiful to see people coming together on behalf of prisoners. But there in D.C., we did have a march that preceded the rally. People gathered there at Freedom Plaza. That morning, there was an opportunity for people to get on the microphone and say where they were from and why they came out and why they're supporting this movement. It was a great networking opportunity. We had media out there. A lot of our guest speakers and edutainers were there in Freedom Plaza as well. They did come together. We had a march that took place 
um, again, from Freedom Plaza to the Lafayette Park. And it, I'm not sure if you or the listeners have had an opportunity to see some of the footage or the videos from that demonstration, but we were loud and we were out there and people were representing um, not only Millions for Prisoners Human Rights March, but they were representing organizations that they had come from, ideas that they had, and so some of the banners and flags and posters and signs certainly reflected the energy that was out there that day. So it was wonderful. We had lots of people marching from Freedom Plaza there to Lafayette Park, where our rally took place. We had a rally of about maybe 28 speakers. The beautiful thing, I think, about what we were able to accomplish there at our rally is we had representation from so many diverse aspects of the prison resistance movement. I mean, we had revolutionaries there, people who have been involved in the struggle in a long time. We had a lot of ex-prisoners there. We had a lot of political prisoners there. We had socialists there. We had prison abolitionists there. We had slavery abolitionists. We had families, friends. There were children there. It turned out to be a peaceful demonstration there. Lots of opportunities for networking. And I think that our voices were certainly heard. And we are definitely strengthened by the connections that were made there on August the 19th. So very excited about what took place. But I'm even more excited that people are looking forward to the after game plan, to what's next. People are excited about what's next. And so we're excited. We're in the process of gathering those things together. A coalition is being formed um, that will comprise of various organizations as well as individuals. And we are continuing this same work. We're working with lawmakers and others who um, are able to change the laws. That's one of the things that we truly seek is the constitutional amendment. This was not just a one-day event on August the 19th. And so we're very excited. We realize that we have got to keep up direct action. We've got to stay connected with the people. We've got to stay connected with what's going on in the streets as well as go back into our tables, to our, to our roundtable discussions, and put these things down on paper and get these signatures. We hope to take this issue before the U.N. And so this is a well-thought-out coalition, a well-thought-out game plan going forward. And so hopefully in the next 30 days or so, that is something that we'll be sharing um, with the public as well as continuing to engage people and recruit people to be a part of that coalition. Yeah, I know that Mumia Abu-Jamal called in too, right? Uh... Albert Woodfox from the Black Panthers and the Angola Three. Tons of people came out came out in D.C. Crystal, I, w- I want to ask you. So, what do, what do you say to folks that say changing laws isn't going to simply just change society as a whole? What what do you say to those folks? I say that this is not an end all be all solution. This is one piece of a larger puzzle. We're talking about dismantling this entire system, dismantling the prison industrial complex. Well, there's got to be a process to that. There's got to be a strategy to that. And this is a part of that strategy. We don't want people to be mistaken that we're reformists because we're not. We want to dismantle this entire operation that's going on. And a good start in that is if you remove some of these financial incentives associated with keeping a mass amount of people enslaved in prison. You know, the 13th Amendment certainly incentivizes (laughs) 
keeping people locked up, you know? The very language itself in that 13th Amendment that legalizes slavery, that is one of the most inhumane and dehumanizing aspects of it, speaking from the prisoner's perspective. And having that exception clause removed from our Constitution is one of the first steps that we should take collectively in, in restoring the dignity of prisoners and talking about rehabilitation and habilitation and programs that are so much needed behind those walls as well as when people return into our communities. So I would say to people who are against changing the laws or, or they may not see any benefit in, in doing so, I think that if that's all you plan on doing, then yes, that would probably be a fail. But I think that this is just one step in the larger, broader aspect of all of the things that we hope to accomplish. For sure. Thank you. Thank you so much, Crystal, for your organizing and for speaking with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me be a part of the program. I hope the listeners will continue to follow what we've got going on and certainly link up with us. We close the episode with Dee, an incarcerated organizer with Jayhaw's Lawyer Speak, about what went down inside in the wake of August 19 and the future of the prisoner resistance movement. I'm Dee, I'm with Your House Lawyer Speak. We fight for the human rights of prisoners inside this country. We're also uh, one of the main organizers as it relates to uh, prison resistance movement. We help to organize strikes and to uh, educate prisoners into, their, uh, into the basic fundamentals of the law so that, that way they can fight back because sometimes we have to use the legal tools that's given to us to fight back. So we try to make sure that we train prisoners in that as well. My biggest thing is also trying to help to organize the outside to bring awareness to what's going on on the inside. I and mean, right now, one of our biggest projects is trying to connect the inside with the outside. Can you tell us real quick how you all lived through August 19 and kind of what, what went down? Yes, uh, August 19. Wow. That was, <laughs> what can I say? Well, where I'm located at and in the Florida area as well, particularly Panhandle, um, as y'all may be already know, we're well aware that over 100,000 prisoners was locked down during this particular time period. What they basically did, they did a lot of preemptive strikes. Instead of waiting on August the 19th to come around, they ended up locking down a lot of uh, prisons uh, throughout the country. Uh, particularly, I know Florida was locked down. I know South Carolina was locked down. I know U- um, Atlanta UPS was locked down. Um, and I'm sure sporadically throughout the country there was um, lockdown things that has not actually been reported yet because prisoners don't necessarily have the communication to get the word out to what happened to them preceding August 19th as well as on up to, to current this current period. This, we haven't got all the reports back as yet. Um, but a lot of times what they did was they came through, they searched, locked us down, searched, tore our sales up. Fed us bag lunches. Bag lunches consist of bologna sandwiches, usually green bologna, two slices of bread, hard cheese, and then, um, in the morning time, two boiled eggs with a little small, uh, small cup of cereal. These tactics are usually used during the time when there is a, a, a ongoing rebellion in the prison. In this case right here, this was a preemptive strike as if we had already had a rebellion. So, it, so we kind of understood what they was doing and what was going on. And then particularly when they didn't let us up on the 21st on the 21st of August, which would have been Monday. And my understanding, you know, um, they had definitely got word that it was going to be some more activities after the weekend into that following work week. So what they did was they decided to make a move against uh, over 100,000 prisoners in this country. I think there's been some uh, retaliatory transfers. There's been um, disciplinary infractions that have been written up. People have had their custody level busted. I think it's a whole host of things. you got to understand something. These people, 
they can charge you, you know, for a little bit of anything. And sometimes they'll charge you to make an example out of you. So it may not be um, out yet exactly what all has occurred, but we are absolutely sure that a lot of things occurred. Like, for instance, on my end, where I'm located at, we've had at least six comrades that have been shifted around the state to other facilities. Early Monday morning, while we were still locked down, they came and packed them up, transferred them out, and basically called them instigators, you know. But they did not uh, write them up. They didn't give them any fraction. They just relocated them to other prisons. And a lot of times they relocate to other prisons. They try to do it hoping that once you get to this new prison, you don't necessarily have the same sway over the prisoners at that prison that you did at the other prison. You know, sometimes they run out of space with that, so they just move you on out of state like they did Rashid um, to Florida. You see what I'm saying? So this is how they do sometimes. This, these are the tactics they use to disrupt our rebellion networks, you know, to disrupt the prison resistance movement. This is what they use. Can you tell us what's next? What's what's next after August 19? What's next for the prison resistance movement for prison abolition? As far as we're concerned, we're planning on having more resistance on the inside. Definitely, uh, <laughs> we're going to be setting a few dates in the near future, and we're going to see where that's going to go at, because um, as quickly as the system builds up defenses against our resistance, as quickly as we have to build up, offenses, you know, uh, more offensive tactics. So at the end of the day, you know, uh, we're planning on having more resistance on the inside. It's just a matter of us corresponding with other prisoners in other states and locking in those networks. And a lot of times, a lot of people don't know we usually work through once again with the outside channels and hopefully through families and friends and through other networks that they get the word out to the prisoners in the prisons. And also on the outside, we're hoping that it be more aggressive interactions. I think meetings for prisoners human rights uh, march uh, throughout the nation. It was an example. Um, it was a, uh, even though I consider it was completely whitewashed, as some people like to call it, you know, where it was uh, not even televised on the media or anything like that. But at the end of the day, we do tend on having more activity on the outside ground. What I'm finding myself and some other comrades we was talking about, what we found was that uh, one of the things we have to figure out how to do is we have to actually finance our activities, meaning because a lot of good meaning people that would like to participate can't get to the locations we need for them to get through to because of transportation. A lot of times what's happening is a lot of prisoners, uh, a lot of prisoners in this country comes from poverty-stricken backgrounds. So that means we have very little resources anyway as is. So when you're asking your family members to travel out for a direct action some way, some way, way out to a prison location or to a jail location or to in front of a police station or even to Washington, D.C., it's actually very difficult on these families because of poverty level. And, and we have to remember the state itself and the government itself, particularly, you know what I'm saying, attacks poverty people in this country. It's the, it's the rich versus poor, period. You can't get around that, you know. Nonetheless, we do intend on having more actions on the outside. Uh, we intend on trying to, if we can, produce some tom- simultaneous actions, and even a means for prisons' human rights march, which is now the coalition, um, they intend on being uh, fully involved, continue to be an engine for some of us prisoners back here as well. Some things are going to be coming out in the next couple of weeks. I think we have to give a couple of our lead organizers on the outside um, a break, and then we have to give these guys back here and uh, allow them to regroup because we have a lot, a lot of damage going on back here too, you know, uh, from August 19th. For sure. Thank you so much, uh, Comrade, for your, for your words and for your courage. Uh, we'll definitely keep uh, folks updated. Uh, any last words you want to you wanna tell folks? Well, the last word is, let's tear these prisons down. Thank you. For more reporting on the prisoner resistance movement, check out Michigan's Kinross Prison Strike, You can find it online at michiganabolition.org. And thanks for tuning in. You can listen to our past episodes on our website at www.rustbellradio.org. 
The show is co-produced by the Rust Belt Abolition Radio Crew, Andres, A. Maria, David Langslav, Cape Syed, and Aleo Stark. Original music by Bad Infinity.